0: All right, for those of you who still have not yet gone off-world, the Palooza continues. Of course, we are talking about Blade Runner, which includes the novel which is absolutely nothing like it, called Do Android's Dream of Ed from Texas? Something like that. But before we get to uh, episode three in the Blade Runner Palooza DJ Bunny says, did he just get run over by a truck? Amy Bowen says, there is a moderate mess of snow outside right now. I will have to shovel the driveway. That is, clear a path between my garage door and the part of the road that's been plowed before I go anywhere. Ditto says, the candles extinguish themselves in fear and respect for Chuck Norris. Lopan says, anyone want to join me in the hole I'm going to crawl in? Vandemon says, thankfully my breath doesn't smell of formaldehyde. Ed from Texas says, none of this has happened before and it will never happen again. Espy says, I have to say that Bound made a huge impact on me. I wrote a paper in grad school that got some attention. Jennifer Tilly doesn't bother me in Bound. I need to watch it. Gina G is on today's episode of WTF. Just a Joe says, CPIM alert. Zong, zong, blue, everybody knows one. Retro says, kind of disappointed. I didn't do anything special for Adrian's meds birthday yesterday. Desert Pixie says, do you just love it? First of the week, Vanimond says, um...
1: Okay, we're into the Blade Rutger Palooza. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure if we're I'm married to that name yet, but we're we're talking Blade Runner around Deadpan, uh, which which does include the source material, which is the Philip K. Dick short story called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," which uh, actually does have there are actual electric sheep in that in that book as opposed to the film, um, which I think has electric unicorns. But anyway, my it is my honor and pleasure to have today as my guest. Another Blade Runner expert the Ed from Texas, from the deadpan community. Hey, Ed, thank you so much. Hey, Jack, good to be here today. Um, Yeah, I I appreciate it. Now, I'd I'd actually like to start off, I'm not going to do all the talking, I promise, but I'd like to start off with a... You keep saying that every time you have me on. Hey, shh, shh, shh. I'm talking, hey, 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 shh. (laughs) Well, I think actually I've given you the the floor before, I've never kind of... Uh, okay, well, I'm doing it now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so in in reading about Blade Runner, notice I just you kind know, of kind of dominate right again, but I promise Ed will have his his say. In fact, the quote I'm going to read now will, will all will be revealed because I'm I'm was looking up. I know our friends Tony Mast and crew covered Blade Runner many many years ago for Backseat Producers. Mm-hmm. And um. Now, without you know, going into the content of that episode, I saw that the, the, they only got one comment, cause you know, but the comment was by Ed from Texas. Uh-oh. He, he said, well, guys, I'm going to have to again be a dissenting voice. While I haven't seen the, quote, final cut quote, I think the original theatrical release version, voiceovers and all, is the best version of Blade Runner. The, quote, director's cut, quote, and subsequent voiceover-less versions are just flat-out different movies' ellipsis And they're crap. Deckard is a man, baby. There that is Was that all spoilers on your opinion?
2: No. Well, you know, actually, I guess that was probably a couple of years ago, and I pretty much stand by that. (laughs) So, yeah, I have to... Yeah, maybe it's a little bit bit harsher. I mean, I do still agree that you know the the original theatrical and the director's cut are pretty much completely different movies, um, just because of, of some of those aspects. Um, and I definitely still agree that Deckard is a man.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I'm in total agreement. Um, so all right, so it's interesting that your your opinion has has evolved since then. You uh, you don't hate. All the other versions except for uh, the theatrical version. Then, and have you seen the final
2: cut? Well, that's funny that you mentioned that. I thought I had, um, <laughs> because I got I've got the Blu-ray. I've got you know it's the it's supposed to be you know it's not the cool briefcase that Raya has, but it's got all the different versions of the movie, you know, and what's supposed to include the final cut. Now, I watched that when I got it a couple of years ago, and I remember being very unimpressed with the picture quality and not barely being able to figure out what was all different. Now, I recently found out when I went to watch it again that my um, edition is defective, that what I thought was the final cut was actually a, an additional copy of the work print.
0: <laughs> oh, my so, God.
2: So I've actually um, – I still haven't done it yet, but I've got to follow-up, and supposedly um, – what is it, Warner Brothers, I think – uh, that pr- that put this out, uh, you know, is offering basically a, a, a replacement program. Uh, so I got to contact them and actually get my proper Final Cut disc that's supposed to have all the the best picture and sound and everything. But but oh. no, I can I can say that I, I thought I had, but I apparently have not. <laughs> now actually, Rhett,
1: Rhett mentioned that, and he thought actually that maybe the discs just got mixed, so that maybe your work print disc will
2: have the uh, the director's cut on it. Well, I looked at that too, and my work print disc is the work print disc. Oh. So I've, I've got two work print discs in my box. One is just mislabeled. Uh, see,
1: I blame the machines.
2: Exactly. Well, apparently, uh, I was reading on uh, on some forums when I was first trying to figure out what the hell had happened, and apparently, initially, the first shipments of this version had two copies of the final cut, that the work print disc. Um you know, it said work print disc, but it actually had another copy of the final cut. So apparently as a fix, then they started shipping them with two two <laughs> copies of the work print instead, you know, again with one of them being mislabeled. so I don't know how long it took them to get it sorted out but but apparently when I got around to buying mine it still had uh, it, it had the second round of screw up to it. So they
1: even out, they've distributed the same amount, just not in the right. Packages. Yeah, so so so
2: somewhere out there, someone's got my Final Cut disc that's uh, that's mislabeled, right? And you have their work print, exactly. <laughs> uh,
1: so the work the work print is what was shown to the test audiences that that hated it and thought it was too confusing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, These were a bunch of Paulie Shore fans, I think. Right. That was what what had happened. Something like that. It was like the Paulie Shore fan club. <laughs> I guess. No, this is 1980, so I guess it would be. Um,
2: He's probably a little early for that.
1: Yeah, the idiot com- comedian of the day in 1980. Who would that be? 1982.
2: Mm. Think, man. That, this is our childhood. Well, <laughs> let's see. Rodney Dangerfield's back to school wasn't too far after that, was it?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad answer, right? Um, yeah, Sam Kennison was just kind of hitting his stride.
0: Fucking mm. <laughs> way is uh, yeah. also acceptable. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Sometimes liked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are we rolling? Sure. Okay. Hi, uh, uh, I'm Paul. I'm Storm. And you're listening to Jack, Jack Mangan's, Mangan's to Dead And, really fucking and, and that is the way of things that you're listening to. Of Jack Dead. Yeah. Got it in one. Boom! That's why Boom. We do it. You know what
1: so, alright. Anyway, enough of that. So, um, so, 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 let's get some of your impressions on. Um, on the different versions, and of course, I, I don't know if you've read the book, if you're familiar with the, uh,
2: with the book. I actually have. I first read the book, it's probably been 20 years ago, damn it. Um, <laughs> but I did, uh, I did re-listen to it here on, uh, on the audio book here a couple of weeks ago. Um, and like I said, it had been probably about 20 years, and I had remembered, you know, a lot of the points of the story, and of course I remembered it being very, very different from the movie, um... And that's certainly still the case, you know, compared to any of the versions of the movie. Uh, I I do think, I actually want to comment a little bit on the book first. Sure. Uh, you know, the the book I thought was a very interesting concept, which is typical of a lot of Philip K. Dick's work. You know, I've had a chance to read a few of his others, especially um, some of the things like, you know, the, the story that Total Recall was based on and, and some of those, it seems like, you know, it seems like all the the good and even some of the mediocre science fiction movies of the last twenty years seem to have come from a Philip K. Dick book or short story, right? Um, but the book I thought was interesting, particularly in its view of kind of robotics and androids. That was a very different approach from what we see from Asimov and Three Laws of Robotics. That's a good point. Yeah, it's kind of the anti-Asimov, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, where I think. I think the book really kind of falls short compared to the movie is that, you know, the, 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 androids really, except for Rachel and even her to a, to a great degree as well, you know, they're, they're, you know, obviously physically, you know, similar to humans and they have to go through these tests to, to, to detect them. But, but uh, the book really makes it clear, you know, with a lack of empathy in that, that they are an, they're still very far removed from humans. And I think the movie, you know, in all of its versions, the, uh, the Android characters are certainly a lot more believable as human and a lot, um, you know, they're, they're certainly trying a lot harder to be human.
1: Right. And I think they're
2: all sympathetic. Even Leon does to Leon's probably the least, but I think they're all sympathetic to some degree. Absolutely. You know, when, when, when the last, you know, when they have the this final battle in the um, in the in the high rise in the books, you know, which is kind of strange. It's not even the end. It's not even really almost the climax of the book. You know, it's it's Deckard kind of finishing the 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 robots off. And of course, they're not called replicants or you know anything like that uh, in the book. They they basically made up all kinds of new words for them in the movie, uh, right. including Blade Runner. Right. Um But they're almost I don't know. They're almost props. You know, the, the, the story in the book is certainly a lot more focused on, on Deckard. And, and I guess, you know, to a degree, you, you can get away with that in the book. You know, when you're making a movie and you've got real actors, you know, people that are playing these parts, you know, I think it would have been a tremendous waste, particularly for, like, you know, Rutger Hauer. You know, if he had portrayed Roy Beatty as he was in the book, I think that would have, you know, really been a tremendous waste. You know, I, I certainly think what he brought to the screen, um, you know, not that he's done a whole lot of of great work, but I certainly thought it was one of his best performances.
1: <laughs> certainly, yeah, it certainly his most iconic. I mean, that's the one that he's gonna that's gonna be on his tombstone, and he, yeah, I, I would agree. And, and and it's a great performance. I mean, he really
2: he knocks it out of the park. I think. You know that that ending. You know, there as he's dying there on top of the building with a with uh with deckard there and he's and he's you know talking about you know fighting ships on fire across the you know the belt of orion and all of that and and you know all of these will be lost like tears in the rain i mean that's just his delivery you know obviously he didn't write those lines but but his delivery was very powerful
1: right and the line i mean a had said it in uh in our episode that you have yet to hear <laughs> but right it said you know that's that there's a lot of poetry throughout the film you know a lot of these great great poetic lines and I, that's you know one of the most distinctive ones and you're right the way he delivers it really has a, so much pathos mm-hmm.
2: this is sb aka smooth like butter you're listening to jack mangan's deadpan podcast deadpan it's always close enough to your mouth deadpan is the motherfucking way and it's funny because in the book you know uh there is you know roy beatty has a, I guess, wife character, you know, that's not Pris, and yet, you know, you you feel in the movie, you know, the relationship between Roy and Pris is a lot more real than anything that's portrayed between any of the androids uh, in the book.
1: Right. Right. Um, And, of course, yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um, And, of course, you know, one of the major differences that we talked about is it's interesting that in the movie – there's no mention of uh,
2: of Deckard having a wife. You know that, that's. Yeah, that's very true. You know he's he's on his own, or at least as far as we know. I mean, obviously there's there's no sign of anybody else living with him in his apartment.
1: Right. Well, yeah, he's clearly not married, and that's a big part of the book. Is that he's kind of hen- like henpecked by her mm-hmm. to go to move all get a better better animal, you know, get a real animal, that that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Although it's funny, you know. The, in in listening to the book again this second time, you you kind of sense that, but it's almost like I kind of get the impression that that's Deckard kind of convincing himself that that's what he needs to be doing for her. I don't see a lot of her actually saying that kind of thing explicitly. Well, that's right. Does that makes I mean, sense.
1: Yeah, and actually, I do. I agree with that. Um, but of course, you know, we might be dialing into the wrong emotions there.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, but of course, and that's that's something else that we talked about in the last uh, or in the episode I recorded with Red and Desert Pixie is that you know there's that's another interesting thing that was that's really poignant to the whole story, but it wasn't in the film was the the dialing up of emotions.
2: Yes, yeah, that was uh, that was. Although you know, I don't know, I think that would have been a lot harder to convey in the movie that the effects of this mood organ. Uh, you know, that's there's certainly you know we see it all the time you know, concepts that you can work really well in a book, but you can't really portray well in a visual medium. And I think, I think adaptations like that work best, and I certainly think Blade Runner works well as an adaptation, you know, when, when the creative team recognizes that they're working in a different medium, that they can't just, um, you know, I think I mentioned it before, you know, like the first Harry Potter movie I thought was terrible because it was basically all the actors walking around like they were reading copies of the book, you know, and just and just saying those exact same lines and kind of moving the exact same way, and it was just you know very wooden and terrible. You know, it wasn't until we got to some of the later movies where they diverge more, and and you see them you know recognizing that this isn't a book that we're you know just sitting on 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 the screen reading to people. It's it's got to be you know handled differently.
1: Yeah, I think they you know with that one, I think they're terrified of offending the fan base. Well, on this mm-hmm. one, I mean. They offended Van, but you know I think a lot of people uh, appreciate them as, as separate entities. I mean, I certainly enjoy them both for their differences and and for
2: what they are. But um, yes, yes, yeah. I'll, I'll be real interested to hear what Van actually has to say about all this. <laughs> Seems like we've been we've been. I think all of Deadpan has been building up to Van talking about Blade Runner.
1: Right. I mean, this really should be episode 288 as uh, as Van-a-mom's giving his his take on it. Um, but so, and as for you, this is, is this, I know I, I teased you about this last time, but is this the first Palooza movie that you liked? You know,
2: I, (laughs) I know we've talked about that before (laughs) and it's certainly not because I mean, Flash Gordon, I mean, it's one of my guilty pleasures. I own it. It's still one of my favorites. I'm, I'm surprised I didn't think about it. I should have had you just go down the list of, of everything (laughs) we've done, um, yeah, and and I must confess, I actually enjoyed Zardoz, our first one. Yeah, that that movie is brilliant. That was uh, that was magic, right there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> All of us discovering Zardoz. Yes. Uh, so so yes, th- this is this is not the first. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know that it'd be fair to say say that it was that it was the top. Like I said, uh, you know, I I certainly appreciate Flash Gordon quite a bit. Um, although I found out my My wife has no appreciation for it at all, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's a hard sell, Flash Gordon. I mean, well, you should actually let her listen to all forty-five episodes that we devoted to it, and that might help her change her opinion
2: of Flash Gordon. (laughs) Yes, yeah, Yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) That'll, I think that'll poison her
1: forever against Flash Gordon. But uh, now, since you bring her up, what's her take on? The long, slow, dull plod through the four and a half hours of Blade Runner.
2: What version are we talking about?
1: <laughs> that's no, that's every version. And, and I'm, you oh. know, I'm kidding. I do enjoy the movie. I'm just saying that it is. If I were to to nitpick it or attack it, if I were to go on the attack against it, it's a it's a long, slow, difficult, challenging movie. That's it's not an accessible movie. It's
2: really not. So I wonder. Yeah, I mean. I agree with that somewhat. I mean, certainly it's not an action movie by any means. It's it's a lot more cerebral, but um, mm. um, and I mean, sh- I can't say that she's a necessarily a big Blade Runner fan either. And, you know, that's one of those ones that's, you know, it sits on my side of the movie <laughs> shelf. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Uh, so well, you know, and I think that's common, and you'll hear when when you listen that, you know, Red, of course, is in the. I love, love, love this movie, Camp. You know, I think it's one of his top movies ever. You know, me, I I appreciate it for all the great great things that it is. Um, but I also recognize the flaws. And, yeah, Desert Pixies like, yep, I don't like this movie at all. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> uh,
0: you
2: know. Yeah. And I guess, you know, kind of getting back to the movies, uh, you know, I do. I've certainly seen the director's cut. I understand, I guess, the ultimate – Addition is similar. I know it's still got the unicorn. It still seems to imply that Deckard's a replicant, which, like I said, I just you know I just I just can't buy into. I mean, I could certainly you know see where there was some of that. And again, some things you know some things about the movie probably don't make as much sense you know with with the issue because because even in the um, even in the movie version, you've got the unicorn little origami thing, right. Um, that, you know, Captain Adama leaves.
1: Um, yeah, Captain Adama leaves it outside of uh, Han Solo's room. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. When, one, uh, one, <laughs> one of the iconic moments of science fiction. Right, and actually, you know, the Paul Atreides' girlfriend was inside. So Exactly. You know. <laughs> uh. Me,
0: Grimlock, listened to Jack Mangan dead bad when me not fighting Decepticons. Me, Grimlock, a tyrannosaurus, and Me, not dumb. Me, automobot. Me, Grimlock, love, dead, ban.
2: Although, you know, that's just a random, you know, kind of piece of paper, I mean, and we know it because we saw the little chicken origami earlier in the movie. Um, right, and the know, matchstick I, man, right. Right, you know, but the idea that that's, you know, him telling Deckard that, you know, I know who you are because you've got my memories, you know. I mean, the thing about that is Deckard's a really crappy replicant with the way he gets beat up by the other androids if he's one himself. <laughs> you know, if, if if the police department made him a replicant to go up and be able to take out these androids, they did a really crappy job of it.
1: Right. Well, maybe he came from the fake police department, <laughs> which is you know that's something out of the book again, of course.
2: Yeah, that was a that was a surreal sidetrack in the book that I had forgotten about.
1: Yeah, that and it, it's still surreal. I mean, it's still I'm still kind of kind of gives me
2: a big WTF that, that whole section of the book. It's we well, you know the the thing about that part of the book. It's like okay, how many people in this fake police department were replicants? Was it everybody but the one bounty hunter? Right you know, and and what are these guys doing all day and how does I mean how do you operate something like that that nobody else even knows about
1: right right that was right.
2: that was yeah but like i said I, I i think um you know dick was was probably smoking some good stuff when he wrote that section
1: <laughs> yeah and actually i'm going to apparently i'm going to drag us back and forth is that you know that the the whole blade runner thing was actually based on a William S Burroughs title and there was, hmm. I think, maybe an element or, or two that Ridley Scott. So Ridley Scott is drawing from Philip K. Dick and William S. Burroughs. Okay, that's a lot of drugs right there. <laughs> and it shows on screen. <laughs> um. So, so, so all right, I'm I'm gonna stop dragging us back and forth from book to film. So, um, so I mean, what are what are some of the things that stand out for you? I mean, like if you're trying to convince me. Or someone, and not me, because I've seen the movie. But if you're trying to convince someone who hasn't seen the movie, mm-hmm. you know what are some of the what would what are some of your selling points in the
2: movie? <sighs> well, you know, you're right. It's certainly not for everyone. I can certainly think of plenty of people that would have no appreciation for it whatsoever. You know, I think probably the biggest selling point about the movie, and again, I think this goes to the portrayal, you know, of again most of the actors. That play the androids, you know, is what does it mean to be human? You know, what, what really separates us from these artificial creations? And even now, more so, where artificial intelligence, you know, is, is a lot more of a reality, you know, at least in a, in a, you know, computer sense, you know, obviously we don't have robots that can, that can behave in that manner yet, but, yeah, we seem to be we seem to be pushing towards that uh, that version of Frankenstein's monster probably here within the next ten to fifteen years, you know, to where we're going to have to be dealing with those kinds of questions.
1: Right, I think, and and you're right. I mean, that that's the philosophical side of it. Is you know, Rachel before she finds out what she really is, she believes as much in her emotions as you and I believe in ours. Right? So, mm-hmm. if, is she really truly a you know a lesser being? And, yes, and who you know, and, and who can make that that kind of judgment? So yeah, it's there are uh, you know a ton of fascinating. So you could sell it on the on the philosophical side, um, and I think it's interesting that you say it's not an action movie because it's certainly sold as an action movie. If you look at the movie trailer, you got you know Harrison Ford with his gun and flying shit, and and it's just like okay, this is a, an action sci-fi thriller. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Well,
2: you can never trust marketers.
1: That's true, but you know, I mean, of course, it's also. Got some wonderful action moments, I and mean, the action scenes that are there are, you know, like the duel at the end it goes on a mm-hmm. bit long, but it's got some incredible, incredibly great moments. And of course, you know, the the, the scenes with
2: Leon are, are are just wonderful. Yeah, well, and shoot, even the uh, even you know that first chase through the arcade with Zora, you know that that you know once he figures out what he is and beats the shit out of him, then starts running.
1: Right. And then you know you find that Shane he doesn't actually get her; he gets her stunt double instead. <laughs> and we you know we talked about that because you know, we we watched the film and then we talked right about it, and it was very fresh in our minds. Like yeah, as soon as she starts charging through the glass, it's suddenly like a guy with like a big curly wig and like you know five o'clock shadow <laughs> and a big cigar. I mean it
2: was it was almost yeah
1: almost spaceballs esque with the uh, the stunt double.
2: Yep, yeah, I remember that now.
1: <laughs> um, you know, it's it has its and actually, supposedly in the director's final, awesome cut that you're uh, hopefully going to get eventually, <laughs> that you're entitled to. Supposedly, they actually fixed that, and I actually had the actress Joanna Cassidy come back and and film a little bit. And um, you know, she really hmm. years later, still able to fit in that slinky little outfit and everything. Well, then. So there you there you go. So. And of course, you know that's uh, who knew that you know that people actually would be wearing stuff like that in the future. I, mean, I think that's that's another appeal of the film is just how how authentic the future looks and feels. I think mean, that's one of the that's one of the things that's always really blown me away about the film is just how how authentic everything looks and feels. And how it's, there's really nothing about that future that I'd say like ah oh, that's the science fiction craziness. It's, it's all you know just it's so genuine and such a you know a great attention to detail on the sets.
2: Yeah, and I I certainly think you know it it kind of set the standard for you know sort of dystopian kind of you know future visions that we see you know we've seen in movies for decades since then you know it's 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 kind of the well you know you even get into like you know the 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 newer Star Wars movies with their views of uh, of Coruscant and stuff you know you see obviously still a lot cleaner version because it is Star Wars but but you still see that kind of influence of of you know a future world, with that kind of scenes and kind of a grittiness to it,
1: right? Actually, we didn't mention that, but you know we talked about other films that, that had similar stuff. Of course, The Fifth Element. You know that's that's oh, yeah. the first the first one that comes to mind is that is that city is almost. I mean they they almost could have said, hey, this is the this is Los Angeles from from Blade Runner. We're just right. filming The Fifth Element here instead. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you could easily easily buy that. This is Heather Welliver. Deadpan is the motherfucking way.
1: So, you know, that's something I'm repeating myself now. But, you know, for me, with all the great characters in this movie, I think, um, you know, the city is certainly one of them. And I think, you know, I think that's what... Philip K. Dick only saw 20 minutes of the movie before he died. But, you know, he fell in love with it. And I think it's because of the same reasons that we're talking about. I'm speculating, but I think.
2: Sure. No, I, I, can't, I can't deny that at all. That's certainly... I think one of the strong appeals of the movie, you you were talking about how to sell it to other people. and I mean, even today, I mean, it doesn't look dated. Right. Right. The
1: effects are great. And, uh, again, yeah, the look of it is great. Um, and, you know, there's not really 80s-isms. We know one's walking around with, you know, 80s hair. And, uh, right.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and so, I mean, is, is there anything about the movie? You feel like it's, it's, do you feel like it's a perfect or near perfect film, or is there anything about it that, that kind of sticks in your craw when you when you do watch it?
2: Hmm. You know, it's certainly at the upper end um, for me. Things that that I might have done differently, or well, hmm, I don't know. You know, it it it. Like I said, I I think it hits a lot of the right notes, you know, I think, uh, you know, it was interesting how it kind of paid pays homage to the book with the, uh, with the fake owl, uh, yes. you know, there at, at Tyrell, which of course is a completely different name, uh, than the company in the book. But, um, you know, again, I just think, I think, yeah, you know, and, and again, Van may, may crucify me for this, but I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's probably one of the best examples of, of taking, you know, a book, a written story, and interpreting it in a visual medium.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I mean that that seems to be I you know I definitely I deeply respect fan's opinion, but his does seem to be in the minority. I think a lot of us kind of feel that way. A lot of us say that well this movie isn't is, is so many great things, it's iconic, it's important, it's it changed cinema, it changed science fiction, it changed everything when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh you know it's and it's there's so many brilliant moments. So I would I would agree. I would feel the same. Um. And so and is there anything from the book that you well since you referenced that is there anything from the book that you do wish had been in the movie? Like I don't know. I mean I'll, I'll just throw that out there.
2: Yeah. You know, the one thing I think the movie does suffer a bit from is, and I, I've seen this criticism and and agree with it somewhat, is that. You know the the humanity of the humans is almost de-emphasized, you know, especially Harrison Ford, you know, and I, and I think it was a deliberate choice, but he, you know, he almost plays it as a somewhat, you know, kind of robotic, kind of going through the motions kind of guy, as contrasted to, you know, to the replicants that are, you know, trying to live and trying to survive, um, you know, I, you know, and I understand that, but I I think it might have helped if we could have you know, maybe not had quite so much a stark a contrast. Uh, you know, obviously it makes the it makes the replicants more sympathetic. Um, but right. you know, and I don't know, you know, how that could have happened. I mean, you know, certainly the the deal with in the book, you know, with everyone being focused on you know owning a live animal and how important that was because it showed you know humanity's empathy towards animals and that was obviously the whole basis of the of the void comp test. I think I would have liked to have been able to see something of that uh, incorporated into the movie to to you know maybe blur the lines a little bit closer between you know the humans and the replicants.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, yeah, I think that, you know as I said when I when I read the book uh year less it was less than two years ago you know I had the same reaction I kind of thought like wow they the do android dream of electric sheep is not just you know, I, I just—it's a strange title, but I, there are actually electric sheep in the in the book. So I, I kind of—you know—I I had no idea that there was all of that. And of course, there's also the the other thing that, that's huge, I think, in the book that's not in the film. And I don't know how it played in the film—is the—is the religious stuff or the cultish stuff, which is the right, uh, yeah, whole mercerism, right, right. And you know, we, we talked about that with Red and and. Pixie, you know that you know that going up the hill, and somebody throwing some serious person throwing a rock at you, and it was a it's kind of an interesting little dianetics type like thing, but you know that it's completely absent the movie. I mean, not even a
2: throwaway reference, not even a hey, there, there was this thing in the book. Just it right. nothing. It's not there right. at all. Yeah. Well, and again, that was I think I think that was certainly, you know. I think that was certainly one of the harder things to kind of wrap my head around in the book and figuring out just, you know... Because, again, the deal with the animals and, you know, even though it was still hard to wrap around, you know, why it was such a big deal to have a live animal versus a fake one, but but the whole deal with, you're right, the, the mercerism and, and plugging into this communal, you know, experience kind of thing, um, it was... It was difficult even in the book to to figure out, you know, why that was such an important aspect of what made the people human. Um. And I I do think that would have been, you know, certainly hard to try and, particularly, you know, with what they would have had to, excuse me, work with with 80s technology, you know, maybe now, you know, not that – Hopefully they never ever remake it. That would certainly be one that uh, we might have to go and burn down some executive's house if they tried to propose something like that. But you know that that might be the one thing you know that they might be able to show some kind of view of this shared experience, um, you know more you know more properly with the with the kind of computer animation that they could pull together for something like that. But I, I don't know that they could necessarily make it any more understandable. Right.
1: I'm uh, actually I'm glad you brought that up. Are you, are you aware of the the rumblings in the past couple of years? I know Ridley Scott is talking about doing a Blade Runner sequel. Um, you know he's, that's one
2: of his upcoming projects right now. <sighs> well, I may have to team up with Van on that one. Then we'll probably have to go. Uh, I know there was a I know there was a book which I've not read. Um, that was uh, supposed to be a sequel that was written by. Uh, I don't even remember who it was written by, but but it's not something, you know, it's one of those kinds of things to where I just can't see how it could possibly improve what we've got. It could only be a disappointment as far as I could see. Yeah, I think we might
1: actually have a term for that now. We'd call that the Prometheus effect, I think, where, like, you know, it could be not bad, but still kind of like, well,
2: you're messing with sacred stuff and not improving it, so... Yeah, well, you know, and and with that, I actually I actually watched Prometheus. I, I don't really know much about the Alien movies. My wife is was into more of that, so uh, oh, you know, but just just watching that one for what it was, it seemed like a a lot of missed opportunities. But yeah, that's a that's something for another day, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, that that'll be our next Palooza. But uh, yeah, <laughs> no, and I I just think that's what I I would expect of a Blade Runner sequel. So I'm hoping that he doesn't do it. Um. Um, Ben, and, and actually, just along with just an FYI, I, uh, I spotted in a comic shop just a few weeks back and picked up two, they only had two issues of the Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep comic series. It was an eight issue run. Um, it was a prequel, but it's actually, it specifically states this is the book. This is not in the movies universe. This is in the books universe. So if you want more material, then that's out there for you too. I have to go look for that. Um, And uh, so, well, I have a a final thought, Um, and actually it's not even my final thought, because as I said, I I got into quite a few things. I mean, Red's an expert, and he has a lot to say, but uh, my final thing is actually not even for me. I'm going to read something that uh, I read in an interview with C. Thomas Howell a while ago, and of course any good Blade Runner discussion needs C. Thomas Howell in it, Um, (laughs) and the connection of course is that he was in The Hitcher, which was kind of a, a... Cult sci uh, cult not it's actually wasn't sci-fi a cult horror flick with Rutger Hauer, right? And now C. Thomas Howell is getting older. I think he's playing some bad guys now. And so he's this is what his quote is. And then I'm going to turn it over to Ed. You have the floor for as long as you want to give your final thoughts. But so C. Thomas Howell is uh, talking about playing a bad guy, and he says uh, I'll, the quote is: See, I've quoted Ed from Texas and C. Thomas Howell. He says. I'm going to go back to The Hitcher for a minute here. When I was sitting with Rutger Hauer, I'd watched a lot of his movies, and he'd played the heavy a number of times, so I asked him, Rutger, you've played so many great bad guys, what's your secret? What is it that makes you so good at doing that? And I remember he was smoking a camel cigarette, almost chewing on the end of it. It was filterless, of course, and he kind of looked at me through those steely blue-gray eyes, and with that very thick Dutch accent, he leaned in, he leaned in with that husky whisper and just said, I don't play bad guys. And there you go. That's, uh, I think that was probably part of the key to Rutger Hauer's, you know, brilliant portrayal of Roy Batty that, you know, he was playing, he was, he fully believed in Roy Batty and his motive and his motivations. He wasn't playing him as a bad guy. He was playing him as, uh, you know, a, a, a being, a self-aware mm-hmm. being on the verge of death trying to find some meaning in his life.
2: You are listening to the Deadpan podcast. You are calm and relaxed. All tensions and excess excitability are draining from your body. You feel like leaving a comment on the deadpan page or sending in a segment for the next deadpan show. Now. Yeah, well, and I, I certainly buy into that. I mean, that's, that's I think, certainly one of the things about Blade Runner is that who are the bad guys? You know, there's not... You know, yeah, you know, we know that, that the that the replicants, you know, had to kill people to, to make their escape and and all of that, but you know, you don't you don't it's hard to see them as, you know, you know, the guy with the with the black mustache twirling it in his finger, kinda you <laughs> know, kinda pure embodiment of evil kind of thing. There's just there's not really so much of that in the movie. I mean, really I would think Tyrell was probably closer to evil than anything. Right. Um, you know, because again, you know it seemed pretty clear, well, you know, with Rachel, that the four year you know lifespan was not a technical limitation, you know, it was something that they specifically created and imposed upon the replicants as a form of control,
1: right. And then, of course, it couldn't be undone once it was done. But right, you're right. I think you're right. I mean, that's never said, but that's a good. That's actually a really good assumption. I think. I think you're right.
2: You know, and I think that, and that's kind of hinted at in the in the book as well. We yeah. know that that they, you know, they got the limited lifespan there as well. Um, you know, but really in the book, you know, or in the in the movie, I'm sorry, you know, that's really what's driving the replicants to come back to Earth. You know, to try to get to Tyrell. Because they know, you know that they they've been, you know it's it's um I'm kind of reminded of the of Robin Williams and the genie you know phenomenal cosmic powers and living space. Well, they've got you know these <laughs> these incredible bodies and and mental faculties and everything, but they've got this you know four year body you know in which to live. And and how can you how can you not go a little crazy and and become desperate when you've got those kind of gifts? And that kind of you know incredible limitation. So I, I I can certainly understand you know particularly in with Blade Runner you know Rutger Hauer's assessment that he's not playing a villain because you know obviously he does you know questionable things as he as he <laughs> as he says there but uh, but it's 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 you know you, you just can't see him as a as a classic villain you know out to you know conquer the world and whatever else he's just you know he's just trying to live and. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, found this, this woman that he loves, and he wants to, you know, to be able to be together.
1: Right. And, and then, of course, he even redeems himself in the end. I'd say, you know, he can't undo the, the bad thing, the questionable things, but he does redeem himself.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that, that's one of the other great things about the movie is you have to wonder, you know, when did he make that decision? You know, because he's obviously, you know, trying to kill, or at least he seems to be trying to kill, uh, you know, Deckard as we go through the, uh, through the final confrontation there. But then yet, you know, at, the last, at that last moment there, you know, pretty much his last act that he's able to do, you know, is, uh, is save him. You know, and, and, and I, I have to, that's one thing I haven't been able to figure out for myself is when did he decide that he was going to, you know, spare him? Had he, had he kind of been toying with him the whole time? You know, and planning to you know to let him live, to kind of you know teach him the lesson of you know, you know you you dumbass, you know you're human, you get to live, you need to appreciate it. Or was that you know did that revelation not hit him until the that last moment? Right. You know, and that's where that's just one of the kind of things again where I think the 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 movie is able to be a more successful you know vision of of. This story than than the book does, I th- you know. That, that's an opportunity that I think the book kind of missed out on.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, and of course, I think I, as as I understand, I'm certainly not going to speak for Philip K. Dick, but as I understand it, is that he in his mind there was no sympathy. I mean, you know, they. Are, I, I'd say, I guess, I shouldn't say that there was no that there was no sympathy, but you know, and he never he never seemed to blur the line. He always felt that they were, yes. they were
2: machines, and and yes, I, yeah. Well, and, and even with, you know, even with Rachel's behavior in the book, you know, she, I think, certainly does more to convince the reader, you know, through, you know, her manipulation of Deckard, her, you know, her, you know, killing of his uh, goat there towards the end. Right. Uh, you know, to to really, you know, provide that 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 clear division between the humans and the uh, and the androids. Yeah, you know, and and the running theme you know there in the book as well is that you know that basically androids you know care about nobody else not even other androids because they're completely devoid of any empathy you know and that's and that's pretty much the, that's really the exact opposite of what we see in the movie
1: uh, at least for Rachel yeah I would agree uh, and I think we do see varying degrees of it I' mean, we don't know in the end of the other the other four or five or six or however many since that number keeps changing the movie, but um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that that is a good point too. I think Rachel Rachel is clearly the exception; she's clearly different. Um, well, I I don't know. Is is that a, have we summed up the Ed from Texas take on, on, Blade Runner and do Android stream of electric sheep?
2: I think we have hit it pretty well. Yeah you know, one, one kind of somewhat of a non sequitur, but one thing that that rather irked me when I was listening to the audiobook. Is uh, at the end the the book, or I guess the audio book, is titled Blade Runner, and even at the end, uh, the narrator is saying, "We hope you've enjoyed listening to Blade Runner based on Do androids dream of electric sheep?" But the book was "Do androids dream of electric <laughs> sheep?" It was not, you know, it was not like I was listening to a novelization of the movie. It was the book, and I just found that. I don't know. It was it was irksome, and I almost felt a little disrespectful that that they had kind of co- so completely rebranded the book to the point of absurdity uh, in saying, you know, this is the book Blade Runner. You know, I mean, if they had just said, you know, AKA Do androids dream of electric sheep? But no, they they actually made the point of saying based on Do androids <laughs> dream of electric sheep? And it's like. What have I just been listening to for the last nine hours? That's that's Philip K. Dick's book. That's not the movie.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, they should do the screenplay then as an audiobook. Um, but you're right. I would agree. I mean, I know this, this is a marketing team and not a respectful, you know, artistic integrity team. But, yeah, they could even say, like, uh, Blade Runner, based on some book. You know, they could have done that, and that would have been fine. But, right. You know, well, that's – that's uh. That is tragic, but you know that's that's the marketing world we live in. And, you know, they, they might as well have a blimp flying overhead.
2: Uh, <laughs> Telling something about the wonders of the off-world colonies. That's right. Uh, all
1: right, Ed from Texas. Well, thank you very much for your time and uh, and for your thoughts. And I'm glad before the end that we were able to give you at least another one that that you enjoy. And I know there were two that there are two from our past. You know, we, we were never able to find you a new film that you saw for the first time and loved, but at least we, we got you through two old classics that you enjoyed. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, non-Balooza-esque at all, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you again at the meetup.
2: Absolutely. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll plug it again for those that are listening. You know, if you haven't had a chance to come to one of the meetups uh, and you have any chance at all to come join us, they get better every year. That's
1: right. And if you're not a dick, if you're there for 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 good reasons to hang out and be cool, then uh, absolutely, yes, then you're welcome. And um and Ed, you are welcome. And I'm I'm definitely look forward to to hanging with you again in person and and recording again, and um and yeah and all that. So thank you very much again, Ed. You you totally rock.
2: Sure thing. We'll just have to make sure somebody proofreads Amy's next script before she gives it to me. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, yes. Well, I'm still, either way, I'm glad that you can come. (laughs)
2: Looking
1: forward to it. (laughs) I'll do my snappy thing there.